With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. Today is Wednesday, the 20th of October. We're brought to you by epindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network. Allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix or whatever you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe. Check out libertyshield.com and use the code EPL. VPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops over on Etsy. Right, folks. Steve Bruce is no longer the manager of Newcastle United. Toon fans, you can now rejoice. The owner you hated is gone the manager you hated is gone. You now have a clean slate and all of the money. Um, there's a number of ways to look at this. From a footballing point of view, which is the only way it really should be looked at, he had to go. Newcastle had won only seven of their last 38 games in the Premier League. That's relegation form. Newcastle conceded more goals under Steve Bruce in the Premier League than any other Premier League team in that time. Now, that's a little bit of a wonky stat because some teams weren't in the league for the entirety of that time. Obviously, teams got relegated and some teams got promoted and then relegated again. So, it doesn't read well. For a team that played such a dreadful style of football, 
it doesn't read well that they weren't even good defensively. The one thing that they set out to do. There's been a lot of talk around Bruce about the days off, about whether or not you know he was ever he was ever fully not fully committed is not the right word. I do believe he was committed, but he was never fully throwing himself into this job. He never really had ambition to do anything else other than keep them in the division. And maybe that's what his mandate was. Maybe that was the directive from Mike Ashley. It's very likely that it was. It's very likely that when Mike Ashley let Rafa Benitez's contract expire and brought in Steve Bruce, all he said to Bruce was, you keep this team in the league. That's it. Don't do anything else to keep them in the league. Because Mike Ashley wanted A, to bring in the money from the Premier League, and B, a Premier League is more appealing to potential buyers. Premier League team is more appealing to potential buyers than a championship team. There's nobody could argue that Newcastle have played good football under Steve Bruce. There's absolutely nobody could argue that. But what I will argue is, I don't think he did as badly as we might think. Consider his first season in charge, they finished 13th. Same spot as, as they had the year before. Now, they had spent some money. They brought in Jolington. They brought in Emil Kraft. And they brought in Alan St. Maximum. They sold Eosi Perez. So about a 30 million net spend. You would have hoped they would have gone up a little bit from where they'd been the season before. But that wasn't the case. It wasn't what happened. They finished that season on 44 points. Now, the season before, they'd finished with 45. So while it was the same spot in the league, they were one point worse off. They'd finished with a negative six goal differential in 18-19 under Benitez. In that first season under Steve Bruce, it was negative 20. They conceded a lot more goals. They scored less goals. So the style of football did regress. But he still got them 13th. And that, that's fair enough. If you're told, keep the team in the division and you get them 13th, that's fair enough. Like I said, with the net spend, and the other thing is, they were four po five points behind Everton and 12th. They weren't pushing to go much further than that. They did have a decent enough run in the FA Cup. They got to the quarterfinals. They went out of the League Cup in the first season. Last season, they finished 12th. They got one point more than they had in 1920, which was the same points total as they had in 1819. They scored more goals than either of those teams, but again, either of those seasons, but again, conceded more goals than either of those seasons. A negative 16 goal differential. Finished level with Wolves in pretty much every marker. Wins, draws, defeats, and goal differential. They scored 10 more, they conceded 10 more. Same points total. They'd become a bang average mid-table team who weren't inspiring, were boring, were fairly horrible to watch. And in truth, you were having a tough time really getting on board with anything that they were doing. They were doing okay up until December. On the 12th of December, they beat West Brom 
and they were 14th. This is how mad the Premier League is, okay? That was their fifth win in 12 games. That's not bad. Five wins, two draws, five defeats. Not a bad run for, you know, a mid-table team. From there, they won only seven games in the last 26. Now, they did have seven draws. But somehow they finished higher. Despite losing so often, they finished higher. The league is weird. That's the only thing you can really take from it is the league is weird. Normally, when you put together a run of games such as they did where across eight games they drew two and lost six, normally that would plummet you towards the foot of the table. But there were so many bad teams in the league last year that they somehow managed to stay afloat. They never dropped below 17th. And eventually, with two two wins in the last two games, they got back to uh, to twelfth place. A little bit of a fluke, but twelfth place nonetheless. And like I said, if you're told to keep the team in the league, and you get twelfth, that's not bad. They hadn't been in the relegation zone under Steve Bruce since October two thousand nineteen. Of the first nine weeks, they spent five of them in the relegation zone. They got as high as ninth. That was his highest league position other than after the first game. This season has been a mess. But this season, you always felt like the end was coming. He was clearly no longer interested in putting up with the abuse that was coming his way. And, And I'll come to that. But it was clear that he'd sort of mentally checked out on this team. Graham Jones been brought in last season and seeming to take a lot of the team talks and make tactical decisions. And we saw them play games in the Cups that went to extra time. And Jones took the extra time team talk while Bruce stood off to the side. That type of thing seemed to push Bruce further away. The days off became more frequent. His connection to the players became weaker. The reports about the discontent became more frequent. We saw multiple reports about fights on the dressing room, uh, in the dressing room and on the training ground. All the different rumours came out about arguments behind the scenes between people like Bruce and, say, uh, Richie at le- the left-back. Reports have come out this season that the players call him Mike Bassett behind his back, which is a little bit distasteful. There's clearly been a lot of discontent at Newcastle from the top down. Not not just with Steve Bruce, but with ownership, with management, with the front office, with coaches, with everybody. There's It's been a toxic club for the last few years. Mike Ashley was responsible for that. And Mike Ashley was responsible for Steve Bruce. And I said on this podcast before, as an unpopular manager, The best thing you can have, sorry, as an unpopular owner, the best thing you can have is an unpopular manager because they will take the heat off you. Benitez was a popular manager. The fans loved him. That's the worst thing a bad owner, an unpopular owner can have, is a manager the fans love who you're not backing enough. 
when Rafa was the manager, all of the heat went on Ashley. With Bruce as the manager, much less of it did. Steve Bruce was only ever appointed to be a patsy, to be a punching bag, to deflect attention away from the owner while keeping the team in the division. And to his credit, he did exactly that. He did what he was hired to do. Did he play good football? No. Did he make them a defensive monster? No. Did he improve them? No. Did he challenge for top half or beyond? Absolutely not. Was the football ever good? Ever? Not on your life. One or two games, maybe, you could argue for. But for the most part, it was dreadful. But he kept him in the division and he took the heat off the owner. The first is something the fans should be thankful for because they still have a Premier League team to support. The second is something the fans should have seen through. Steve Bruce has taken horrendous abuse online and at the match from the fans. Now, I fully believe you pay your money, you can go to the game and say whatever it is you like, as long as it's not racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic, misogynist. You know the line. But there's also a line when it comes to what you might call banter. You can tell them to F off, and I'm sure that'll slide off his back. You can't say things about his family. You can't tell him he doesn't care, because he was a Newcastle fan before most of these that have been giving him, abu giving him abuse were born. Steve Bruce grew up a Newcastle fan. It was his dream to play for Newcastle. It was his dream to manage Newcastle. He never got to play for the club. He worked a, a different way, a different path in his career. Gillingham, Norwich, then Manchester United. Became a tremendous player. Overachieved massively based on the talent he had. But that guy loved Newcastle. And it was his dream to go back and manage the club. He was never going to succeed. He was never going to make them a force. The ownership situation is not good enough. The front office situation is not good enough. The academy is not good enough. They hadn't had the money until now. He spent a decent amount, fair enough. But he's never going to make them a force. He was spending the same amount of money as the likes of Crystal Palace and other clubs around him that were finishing bottom half. To call him a cabbage-headed, tactically inept arsehole or whatever it was people were saying, he's got a couple of quotes in an article, an interview with Luke Edwards in the Telegraph this morning. There's, there's some humour in that, but also when you hear it often enough, it, it will wear you down. And the thing for Steve Bruce is when he was at Aston Villa, he was hearing the same things. Villa fans took a similar dislike to him. Now, maybe some of that's on him. 
maybe some of that is, you know, his his personality, how short he can be in the media, how just unconnected he can feel at times, turning up to press conferences, reading pre-prepared statements and then leaving. It's all very weird. He does bring some of it on himself, but there has to be a line. And I do think Newcastle fans crossed the line. I saw Newcastle fans wish illness on him, wish death upon him. Now, yes, maybe some of it said in jest. It's still not funny. You see, we live in a social media era where people think, well, if I say something online, it's just online. It's not really representative of me. And that's okay to an extent. You can have an online character that you play up to and be a different person offline. And that's fine as long as there's humor in it or satire or rage or whatever, but not abuse. Abuse is never fine. Wishing illness on somebody is never fine. I believe Steve Bruce is a good man. And I believe if you're a mid-table championship club with ambitions of maybe having a run at the cha- at, at promotion, Steve Bruce is fine for that. At that level, he's okay. He's never going to pull up trees in the Premier League. It's just not his thing. It's just not, he's not good enough to do that. But he'll keep you in a division. He's had some relegations. Fair enough. He's had more promotions, though. He's a good manager at a certain level. Newcastle was a level too high. It's taken too long to get rid of him, but credit to the new owners. It would have looked bad to just walk in and sack the guy straight away. They've given him his payoff. He's got his eight million. He moves on. He may well retire. In his in his interview with Luke Edwards, he he did hint at retirement. Uh, maybe he's just been worn down by all of this. But look, take your money and go and live on a beach somewhere. Write a few more bad novels. Don't don't put that on yourself. His biggest mistake was leaving Sheffield Wednesday. He had a good thing going there. Now, their ownership situation is not great either. Financially, they're in a bit of a bind. But that's his level. Mid-table championship. And if he stays long enough, as he did at Hull, as he did at Birmingham before, he will get them into the Premier League. He'll slowly but surely grind his way up into the Premier League. May not last there, but he'll get there. But you can't expect any more from him. Newcastle fans had the lowest of low expectations when he took over. And yet were somehow outraged that he didn't have them in Europe. You can't have it both ways. Newcastle fans have done badly by Steve Bruce. Yes, he was a poor manager for you. Yes, the football was crap. And yes, he was a patsy for Mike Ashley. Aim your anger at Ashley. Don't aim it at a fella doing a job. Not to the extent that you have. Scream Bruce out. Shout you're getting sacked in the morning. We want Bruce out. Whatever it is, that's all fine. You're entitled to all of those opinions. You're not entitled to disparage his family. 
You're just not. You're not entitled to wish ill upon the man. I think, to his credit, he has handled his exit with dignity. He hasn't always handled his time at Newcastle with dignity, but he has handled this last few weeks with dignity. For the tune now, they have to find a new manager. The three names that seem to be in the running, Lucien Favre, Paolo Fonseca, and Eddie Howe. I went over this on yesterday's pod. I think Fonseca makes the most sense. He's got the best track record of the three, in my view, certainly recently. Favre is probably a bigger name, and what he did at Gladbach was outstanding. But I think he was poor at Dortmund, despite the 61, nearly 62% win percentage, I think he did poorly there. To fail to build a title challenger in 18 months, when you've got Jadon Sancho, you've got Ashraf Hakimi for a year, you've got Erling Haaland, you've got Jude Bellingham, Marco Rose, uh, Marco, uh, Marco Royce, Julian Brand, Emre Chan. Mo Dehoud, Axel Witzel, Akanji. You had really good players there. And you never even came close to tickling Bayern Munich, let alone punching them in the face. I don't think he's the right choice. He did really well at Zurich early in his career. He did really well at Gladbach. The results don't always pan out to show that he did really well, but you know his 47% win ratio at Gladbach is more impressive to me than his 62% at Dortmund. He didn't do very well at Nice. I was surprised he got the Dortmund job off the back of what he'd done at Nice. But uh, for me, he doesn't... I don't think he galvanises a team. Newcastle in a relegation battle. They need someone to come in and immediately bring that group together. I don't think Favre is that type. I also don't think he's demanding enough of his players. I also don't think the, the style of play is correct for a team where Newcastle are. Really low intensity. They don't press very well. He's not demanding enough. Fonseca is. Fonseca will demand every single bit that that group has. I think Fonseca plays a better style of football as well. Is a better fit for Newcastle than Lucien Favre. Because I think Fonseca is the type that can actually grow with the club. Now, I don't think he's the type that will win your Premier League. But I do think he's the type that over three, four years can develop with the team. He's 48 years of age. He's still improving as a manager. Lucien Favre, 63. Does he really have the fight left in him for a title, for a, for a relegation battle? Or is he coming for a payday? Because I can tell you as fact, the reason Crystal Palace walked away is they didn't feel he had it in him if the going got tough. They felt he was coming for a payday. So maybe Newcastle need to consider that as well. 
Eddie Howe is not a bad appointment, but the last time he was in a relegation battle, it didn't go very well. If you appoint Eddie Howe, you cannot let him have any input in transfers. They need to get a director of football in. Fonseca and Luis Campos would make a lot of sense, both Portuguese. I think you could definitely make a case that that's a pairing that will work. I would suggest Fonseca is the best choice. I think it's a doable deal. I don't think it's a difficult one to put together. I think he walks in straight away, installs a good style of football over the first few weeks. He's a better defensive coach than people give him credit for. He's a very good attacking coach. I think Paolo Fonseca would be a good appointment for Newcastle, not just uh, someone to get us through for 18 months, not just someone to get you through till the end of the season. I think he is someone that can come in and potentially be there three or four or five years as they build this project up, as they build the things that they need, an academy, upgrade that, upgrade the training ground, sort out the stadium, sort out the front office, get your medical staff in order, get everything else in your house in order. I think he will continue to bring you up the league. You'll spend money, obviously, we know that. And then if he hits the ceiling, whether that ceiling is third or eighth or whatever it is, then you can move on. But I do believe he can turn Newcastle into a European challenging team within a couple of seasons with the backing he's going to have. A title challenger? No. But certainly a European challenger. I think Fonseca makes a lot of sense for Newcastle. And I think he's someone whose presence, his belief in what he does will translate across to the players. I think we'll see them play with more confidence. I can see him getting the best out of some of the players who maybe haven't performed under Steve Bruce. One player who did perform under Steve Bruce stands at maximum. And credit to him, while nobody else has come out in support of Bruce, or at least I haven't seen them yet, there's been lots of hatchet jobs. And you could tell that a number of journalists had these pieces ready to go and couldn't wait to dump the whole notebook in. Sir Maximum came out and said, you are without doubt one of the most gentle people I've ever met in the world of football. You're a man of your word, a caring man and a fair man who never hesitated to protect us. I will never forget how you treated for me. For that, I will be forever grateful. That's your best player who doesn't need to do that. He's done that off his own back on his own social media. Coming out and speaking about Steve Bruce. And I would take his word over the word of a number of journalists who very clearly had issues with Steve Bruce. Now, I think there's a couple that have written negative pieces about him today that are very, very good. Very good journalists and very fair. Their experiences with Bruce have not been good. Some of that is on Bruce. Some of that is on them. Bruce does have his favourites in the in the media. Luke, Luke Edwards is one of them. That's why Luke got an interview 20 minutes after Steve Bruce. Uh, it was announced that Steve Bruce was parting ways with Newcastle. Like I said, I think Bruce is a good man. I think he's an okay manager at a certain level. Newcastle was a step too far. 
he wasn't good enough, the football wasn't good enough. He's rightly been dismissed. From a footballing point of view, he wasn't good enough. Simple as that. But the human point of view is Newcastle fans owe him an apology. Because it wasn't his fault. He did what he was brought in to do. Right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll look at the Champions League. And I also want to have a quick chat about Arsenal versus Crystal Palace from Monday night. See you in a sec. Right, folks, welcome back. So, uh, Champions League last night. Lots of good games, lots of action. The two early kickoffs produced lots of goals. Uh, Besiktas won Sporting 4. Two goals from Sebastian Cuates, formerly of Liverpool. Pablo Sarabia and Paulinho rounding it out. Uh, Kyle Lahren, the Canadian international striker, with the only goal for Besiktas. Uh, Sporting had 36% of the ball, but yet had 20 shots and nine on target to Besiktas's nine shots and two on target. That manager at Sporting, uh, whose name escapes me right now, he has done a sensational job. Ruben Amarim. He has done a sensational job since taking over. Last year was his first full season. He took over at the end of the 1920 season. He had been at Braga. He'd been doing brilliantly at Braga. Now, admittedly, he'd only been there four months. Uh, he'd come through the Braga kind of coaching system. Sporting nabbed him, and he has just done a sensational job since taking over. He's already won three trophies. He won the league last year. They were unbelievable. Uh, he won the League Cup. And he won their Super Cup this year. Whether they count that as a trophy or not, I don't know. He also won the League Cup the year before at Braga. Um, so he's a manager who has had success already. He's only 36. But he's done a hell of a job since taking over. And I really do think he's going to be one of the names we look at in the next few years as one of the top managers in the game. His team are so well coached. And they execute their game plan. They play a 3-4-2-1. And they play it to absolute perfection. He gets the best out of absolutely everybody. In the other game of the early kickoffs, Manchester City went to Bruges and destroyed the home team 5-1. Comprehensive victory from City. Canseo, two from Mares, Kyle Walker, and a first goal for young Cole Parma. Really well taken goal as well. Hans Vanagen with the consolation goal in the 81st minute for Bruges. Uh, concerning after the game, though, there was a City fan attacked. City have released a statement saying everybody, everyone at Manchester City 
is shocked and saddened to hear reports of an attack on one of our supporters after the Champions League game in Bruges last night. We are currently working with our counterparts at Club Bruges as well as the Belgian and Greater Manchester Police to establish more information. Our thoughts and best wishes go to the family and friends of the Belgian-based supporter who remains in hospital. So uh, we will all obviously be keeping our fingers crossed that that supporter makes a full recovery. Nobody should go to a game of football and not make it home. And uh, it is horrible when you see things like this. Um, Hopefully we get some good news coming out of that situation in the next coming days. Uh, In the other games then, we had obviously Porto 1, Milan 0. Luis Diaz with the only goal of the game. Milan very, very poor. Porto dominated them throughout. I think they had five times as many shots, 20 to 4. Didn't get many on target. Didn't work the keeper whole bunch. But very, very dominant performance from Porto. Um, Ajax 4, Dortmund 0. Dortmund were an abomination. Uh, Marco Royce own goal, Daly Blind, Anthony and Sebastian Haller, who seems to think he's Latan Ibrahimovic this season. He is playing out of his skin. And there's got to be West Ham fans looking at this thinking, why couldn't you do this for us? Why is it that you're this player for them and you were somebody else for us? Uh, big win for Ajax, really disappointing for, for Dortmund. Real Madrid 5, Shakhtar Donetsk 0 in, in Donetsk. Well, Real were the away team. It wasn't in Donetsk. Obviously, that stadium is is not used at, at the moment. Where was this game played? Uh, it was played in Kiev. Shakhtar have had to play all of their home games away from home for a couple of years now. They have been using... I think Metalisk Stadium. But for Champions League games, I suppose it makes sense to play them in in Kiev because the nest is still a a bit of a war zone. Um, they're actually using the Olympic Stadium in Kiev permanently at the moment. They were playing in a different stadium. And it'll bother me if I don't figure out what stadium it was. Yeah, Metalisk Stadium in Kharkiv. It's where they had been playing, uh, but they've now seemingly moved all games to to Kiev. Disappointing result for them, nonetheless, uh, even if they aren't at home in their own stadium. You shouldn't be losing 5-0. Um, an own goal, two from Vinicius Jr., Rodrigo and Karim Benzema rounding it out. Haven't watched the highlights. Sounds like Real just wiped the floor with them, though. 23 shots, 10 on target, most of the ball and five goals. Did watch this one. Paris Saint-Germain, three. RB Leipzig, two. Mbappe scores after nine minutes. And PSG looked like they might actually run away with this one. And then all of a sudden, the wheels come off. Andre Silva scores. Then Nordi Mukieli makes it 2-1 in the second half. Lionel Messi springs to life on 67. He makes it 2-2. Mbappe wins a penalty and then hands the ball to Messi, who steps up, and it's a wonderful penalty. 
didn't think PSG were particularly good for the majority of this game. And I do feel like Pochettino is playing with fire a little bit at the moment. It doesn't feel like it would take much for that ownership to say to him, this is not working, out you go. When Zidane and Conte are sitting out there available. Now, I don't think Conte is a particularly good fit for this group of players. Although, to be fair, Messi, Mbappe, Neymar as a front three. He's played 3-4-3 before, so that's fine. Hakimi is the right wing back, knows him, loves him. They were brilliant together at Inter. Nuno Mendes as the left wing back. Verratti plus one of Idrissa Ganagé, Ginny Wijnaldum, or Danilo Pereira in midfield. And a back three of Marquinhos... I mean, Kimbembe is playing so poorly at the minute, I just don't know how you can justify putting him in the team. Marquinhos, Abdo Diale, Diallo, Diallo, Abdo Diallo, and one more. I mean, they've got Ramos. I don't like Ramos, but I mean, if you put him in the middle of a three, he'll probably be okay. Marquinhos, Ramos, and Diallo is a three. That's actually really good. And that probably is a Champions League contending team in a 3-4-3. You've got Kaylor Navas and Gigi Donnarumma as your goalkeepers. The more I think of this, the more I'm talking myself into this. Um, that might actually be a perfect landing spot for Conte. Kurzawa is a backup left wing back. Dag- Dagba is a backup right wing back. Still have Kimbembe. You still have Carrera's backup centre backs. You'd have Gaye, say Danilo with, with Wijnaldum starting. Um, Herrera, you'd have decent depth in midfield. You'd have De Maria, Drax, uh, Draxler, and Icardi as depth up front. Conte might be perfect for them. And the thing is, as demanding as he is, they can afford to buy whoever it is he wants. So if he does turn around and demand a different midfielder in January to go with Verratti, they can do that. If he wants a better centre-back than Ramos, they can do that. Now, I don't know that he'd particularly love the Neymar brand of rolling around on the floor, but I think he'd live with it. Um, He'd love Mbappe. Everybody would love to work with Messi. Conte might actually take that team to a level that nobody else can compete with. You put an elite level manager with one of the greatest players of all time, what, with one exception being that middle centre back role, would be a world class 11, pretty much. I mean, the only one you, you Diallo's not world class, but he's good. Ginny's not world class, but he's very good. Hakimi and Mendy, not Mendes, not yet, but they're getting there. The front three are world class. Verratti's world class. Marquinhos is world class. Donnarumma's world class. That's a fairly special team to hand Antonio Conte. Two signings: central defender, central midfielder, defensive midfielder, and you're probably laughing yourself all the way to a Champions League victory. Keep an eye on Pochettino, though. There's 
He's a decent manager. I just don't know that he's an elite, an, an elite level manager. I certainly think they downgraded going from Tuchel to him. Conte would be really interesting at PSG. Whether he'd want the job or not, I don't know. I don't know if he'd have any interest in going there. Zidane, I assume, would. Zidane would probably go and play 4-3-3. Hakimi, Marquinhos, he'd probably lumber himself at Ramos. That'd be foolish, but I think he'd probably do that. And Mendes at left-back. Donnarumma in goal. Verratti in the Cruz role. Um, not sure what else he'd do in midfield. He might play Wijnaldum as the holder. I think he'd need one in midfield. I think he'd need one more, but he'd probably get by with what he has. Danilo, Herrera, Gaia, etc. Um, there might be a youngster ready to get you know, pushed through to the first team. I don't know. And then up front, the options are the options, and they're, and they're great. Zidane might very much like that job, though he is from Marseille, and there's a long time Marseille-Paris rivalry in all things, not just football. So maybe Paris is not something Zidane would want to would want to do. But with those two out there, I, I think Pochettino could come into some significant bother because last night's performance was not good. The result is fine. You get the win, you move on. That's great. But the performance wasn't good. Uh, Inter Milan 3, Sheriff Tiraspol 1. Uh, Eden Jekyll scored for Inter after 34 minutes. Sheriff fought back and equalised on 52 before Vidal and Stefan de Vries made it 3-1. Again, massive credit to Sheriff. They, they just don't roll over. They only had 29% of the ball. They still managed to put up a bit of a fight. So credit to them. Uh, I think they've done themselves really proud. The last game then is Liverpool 3, Atletico Madrid 2 in Madrid. And an absolute weirdo of a game. Liverpool battered Madrid for 20 minutes. Uh, Salah with a deflected goal off Condogbia. And Naby Keita, with an absolute worldie on the volley from the edge of the box, made it 2-0. Then Atletico came to life on 20 and scored pretty much straight away from the first real chance. Um, short corner, Thomas Lamar beats Naby Keita too easily, plays the ball back to the edge of the box. Koke has a shot. Griezmann sticks a foot out, deflects it in, goal. Um, question marks over Thomas Lamar, who may well have been offside. After his cutback, he continued to run the straight line and ran behind Joel Matip, who was Liverpool's deepest player, and seemed to impede him in his efforts to clear the ball. Goal was given nonetheless, 2-1. Alison Becker comes up huge with a couple of great saves in this spell. Uh, two 1v1s, one, versus, one against Griezmann, one against Lamar. Another good save from... Joe Felix, so that came after the second goal. Second goal was again scored by Griezmann. Again, Naby Keita's involved. He gets beaten about 35 yards from goal, over on the touchline. He gets beaten by Joe Felix. When Felix spins into space, nobody presses him. Joel Matip is out of position. Trent doesn't press him. Jordan Henderson is doing God knows what, definitely not what he's meant to be doing. And James Milner isn't tracking back to cut off the pass to Griezmann. Virgil van Dijk is facing the wrong way, unaware of where Griezmann is. Matip is out of position. 
and Andy Robertson is not talking to a centre-back to let him know that Griezmann is making a move. It's a weak ball from Felix, but because Henderson and Milner are not in position, it finds its way to Griezmann. First touch gets it out of his feet. Second touch puts it beyond Alison Becker. Really good finish. Really good work from Joe Felix. Appalling from Liverpool. Absolutely appalling. Naby Keita beaten in the first instance. Not great. Not great. But he's beaten by Joe Felix, who's phenomenal with the ball at his feet. Everyone else fails to do their job after that. Now, Naby got taken off at half time. Henderson and Milner were appalling in the first half. Naby wasn't great, but he was better than them, and he scored. He was very poor for the first goal. He could have done a bit better for the second, but so could everybody else. He did his job. They didn't do theirs. He gets hooked off. Now, Jurgen Klopp's come out and said it was more a minutes thing than anything else. He played a lot for Guinea. He played 90 at the weekend. Maybe that's the truth. I don't know. What I do know is that Fabinho came on and Liverpool immediately improved. He gave Liverpool a foothold in midfield, some solidity, a defensive shield. Griezmann gets sent off on seventy on 52 for a high foot. It's a red card. There's no way around it. Liverpool get a penalty on 78 because Mario Hamoso is an idiot. There's no other logical reason other than that he's a fool. Uh, Simeone was trying to take him off but couldn't because the ball wouldn't go to play. And when it did go out of play, players were restarting play too quickly. So he was still on the field. The ball goes up in the air from Trent Alexander-Arnold. Diogo Jota is moving in the general direction of the ball. Whether he gets it or not, I don't know. Hermoso just bundles into him, sends him flying, and uh, and then complains that he's called for the penalty. It's a blatant penalty. Salah steps up, beats Oblak quite easily, puts him the wrong way, and Liverpool are 3-2 up. And you kind of think that's it. That's the end of the drama here. 3-2 up against 10 men. You know, this will settle itself down. Um... James Milner and Jordan Henderson had continued to be dreadful throughout. Milner got hooked. Oxlade-Chamberlain came on, and he actually played quite well, as was Fabinho, who'd played well from coming on. Liverpool couldn't get control against 10 men, and Atletico still looked the more dangerous team. They were awarded a penalty a couple of minutes after Liverpool won, and it got overturned. Now... Both teams are right to be annoyed about this. Liverpool should be annoyed that the penalty was given in the first place. Atleti should be annoyed it was overturned. There was contact. It wasn't strong enough contact to warrant a penalty, though. But there was contact. Thus meaning it wasn't a clear and obvious error to give the penalty. So when the referee goes to over and overturns it, well, he can't really overturn it. He shouldn't, but he does. The referee was really poor in this game for both for both teams. He was just dreadful. He lost his head. Atleti were their usual selves, moaning, protesting, pressuring the referee. The fans were in a frenzy. Simeone was whipping everything up like he does. He overturns the penalty. Luis Suarez goes nuclear, decides to tell him exactly what he thinks of him. Uh, swears at him, gets booked, then proceeds to swear at him about 15 more times and somehow doesn't get sent off. 
Uh, the game plays out. Liverpool get the win. And no, nobody related to the home side is happy. They'll complain about the red card. They'll complain about Liverpool's penalty and the penalty given to, uh, to Atleti and overturned. What I will say about those things is the red card is a red card. It doesn't matter if Griezmann intended to kick Fabinho in the face. He did kick him in the face. That makes it a penalty. So there's no moaning or complaining that you can do that changes that. It was a penalty, simple as that. Or it was a red card, rather, simple as that. The the penalty for Liverpool is a blatant penalty. I agree you have right to gripe about the other penalty. Once it's given, it shouldn't be overturned. The thing is, it shouldn't have been given in the first place. Um, Concerns for Liverpool include that midfield, which continues to struggle. Uh, We've now seen Jordan Henderson play, I think, 11 times this season. Let me just check that. It could be 10. Three in the Champions League for for certain. And seven in the Premier League. And one in the League Cup. We'll throw the League Cup out because nobody cares. He's been really poor in all three Champions League games. Uh, He scored against Milan and his performance was overlooked. That wasn't granted to Naby Keita yesterday, who scored a superior goal and has been chastised and diminished by every major journalist who covers the club. No mention at all of Henderson's bad form. None. Henderson has played 10 real games this year across the Premier League and the Champions League. He has been varying degrees of awful in eight of them. His only decent performances, and by decent I mean maybe 7 out of 10, Burnley and Watford, where he played as the number 6 against teams who didn't attack. In both of those games, Naby Keita was playing with him. In both of those games, Naby Keita was better than him. Jordan Henderson played the entire 90 minutes in yesterday's game. Just to give you an idea about how bad some performances were, right? So Naby Kate has been destroyed about his defensive performance. He only won one of nine duels. Okay, he played 45 minutes. He was involved in nine duels. It's not ideal that he only won one at all, of course. James Milner only won two of eight. Koke, in the Atletico midfield, won three of eight. Rodrigo de Paul won five of seven. Thomas Lamar won six of eleven. Fabinho, who only played half the game, won five of six. Alex Oxley Chamberlain, who played less than half an hour, won three of five. Jordan Henderson won one of four. He was only involved in four midfield duels. As the holding midfielder, he was only involved in four midfield duels, one of which was an aerial. He was only involved in three tackles on the ground in the entire game. As the defensive midfielder, as Atletico Madrid routinely strolled through the middle of the Liverpool team, right down the middle, where he was meant to be. In 90 minutes, he was involved 
in three ground duels. In 45, Fabinho was involved in five. Henderson's performance was an embarrassment, but there's no word about him today in the press. Oh, he helped them win, said one journalist. Did he? In what way? Because he was the one who should have been ready to tackle Joe Felix when Felix spun round Keita. That's his job as the defensive midfielder. He was the one that played everybody onside for the penalty that Atletico were awarded. If that had been given, that was on him as much as Jota. He was awful throughout, as he has been all season. Not one word. Nabi Keita has been really good this season. That's his first poor performance of the season. He still scored a goal. And yet, read the papers. Read what these idiots are saying about him. Oh, it was his Liverpool career summed up. What are you talking about? Genuinely. He's played eight games, seven of them real games. We won't count the League Cup. And he's been good in, in six of them. Henderson's played ten, been good in two. And in the two Henderson was good in, Naby was better in. I, I just... The bias towards certain players, one player in particular, is incredible. I've never seen a player as protected. There will be no discussion about how bad his form has been because people are afraid to discuss it because they might have to admit that he hasn't been good in a while. And in fact, if you look back over his Liverpool career, he hasn't always been very good at all. He's had multiple bad seasons. Even his footballer of the year season, he was bad for more than he was good. He was dreadful for the first four months. Then he had a couple of good months. Then he got injured. Then he didn't play again. He was bad last season. He's been dreadful this season. But it's easy to look at the fellow that costs 50-odd million and say it's his fault. Oh, Klopp took him off, so clearly he agrees with me. Well, you asked Klopp. You're the guy that asked Klopp the question after the game, why did Naby come off? Klopp gave you an answer. You didn't like the answer, so you wrote something else. But yet, if Klopp came out and said, Jordan Henderson's the best player ever, put Messi and Maradona in the corner, Henderson's the best player ever, you'd have week-long features on it because it suits your narrative. Last game I want to discuss is Arsenal 2, Crystal Palace 2 on Monday night. Obviously had to record yesterday's pod a day in advance, so it was recorded before the Arsenal Palace game. A couple of quick things. Thought Palace showed great fight, great determination. Conor Gallagher is a really important player for them, and I'm really hopeful they'll get to keep him permanently. Uh, he was excellent again. Arsenal showed some signs of frailty that we knew were going to be there. Thomas Partey got caught in the ball for the first goal. Lukonga got caught in the ball for the second goal. They need someone a bit busier in midfield. Partey's really good box-to-box. -box. They need someone next to him who can really dictate the play. 
Ishmael Benasser, currently at at AC Milan, formerly of Arsenal, would be ideal. Just saying. He'd be ideal. Uh, uh, Arsenal had gone one up. Really good work from Nicolas Pepe. Played a good one too with Tomiyasu. Really good shot. Forced a good save from Gaeta, but Aubameyang does brilliantly to react and turn the rebound in. And then Arsenal fell apart. Um, Benteke makes it 1-1. Partey gives the ball. It gets caught in the ball. Turns it over. Arsenal, or Palace break. Arsenal's defence is out of shape. Benteke gets 1v1 with Gabriel. Doesn't really bother beating him. Just shifts the ball enough to make space. Good shot. Gives Ramsdale no chance. Uh, the second goal, Lukonga gets caught in possession by Gallagher, who feeds Elise. He plays it to Edouard, who doesn't even bother trying to beat the defender. Just lets rip. Just absolutely puts his foot through the ball. I think the keeper should do better. It's straight over his head. Uh, hits the top of the hits the bottom of the crossbar rather and goes in. It's a great strike from Edouard, but you'd be annoyed if your goalkeeper let that one in. To their credit, Arsenal kept going, kept fighting, kept battling, which I don't think they would have done a couple of months ago. And they get the the reward. They get their their equaliser. Pepe with a good cross into the box caused a bit of chaos. There's a shot, I think, from Kieran Tierney that the keeper saves or, or gets cleared off the line. It bounces out and Lacazette just wallops at home. All things considered, it's a good point for both teams. Arsenal because they had to come back and fight for the point. Palace because the point away from home against Arsenal. But I thought Palace were the better team on the night. We saw more from Vieira in terms of what he's instilled in that Palace team than we have seen from Arteta, who's been in the job two years now at this point. Vieira's been there a matter of months. I think Vieira's doing a tremendous job at, at Palace. I really do. I'm so impressed by what I'm seeing. I'm so impressed by how quickly the players have adapted to a totally new style of play, how quickly the new signings have settled in, how everybody's contributing. They did that without Will Zaha. They went there and got that result without Zaha and without Ezzy, their two best players. Um, when they get Zaha and Ezzy back, they're going to be a really, really good team to watch. They still need a couple of new players. They need a, they need one at right back. They need one in midfield. Um, the, the injury to Nathan Ferguson, I, I have great concerns over him. He just doesn't seem to be able to stay fit. He's had a couple of knee injuries and now this Achilles injury. That's a concern. He may end up being more of a centre-back anyway. And if he's your third centre-back or fourth centre-back, that's absolutely fine. So I think they could do with addressing right back in January. And I'd like to see one more in midfield. Speaking of the midfield, how James MacArthur stayed on, I don't know. If you haven't seen what he did to Bakayo Saka, please go and search social media. Just put in MacArthur Saka and you will see. That's a straight red card all day. And somehow he was only given a yellow. Arsenal fans have tried to use that as a bit of a crutch to make up for the bad result. Fair enough. Your team just didn't play all that well for the most part. Um, some good moments, some bad. Pepe, if he plays, has to play on the on the left for me. Saka needs to be on the right. I think Saka influences the in in four two three one. Saka influences the game more off the right than he will off the left. I thought Arsenal went a little bit too attacking with their starting eleven. A um, little bit of a lack of respect maybe for Palace. Uh, I'm not sure if that's what the case was, but 
I certainly wouldn't have been starting a midfield pairing of Tomas and, and Odegaard uh, with Smith-Rowe as the 10. I, I would have played Smith-Rowe on the left, Saka on the right, Odegaard as 10 and played Lekonga. Now, I know Lekonga didn't do well when he came on, that's fine. But I felt you were getting overrun from early in that game. Gallagher was just constantly on the move. Um, like I said, really impressed with Palace. Really, really impressed. And I'm really excited to see Michael Elise continue to develop. He's a very, very good player. He is. He's a really special talent. And credit to Palace for uh, for jumping on that one early. Um, not to say that I'd mentioned him multiple times on this podcast as somebody they should sign, but I had mentioned him multiple times. Uh, tonight in the Champions League, we've got Orby Salzburg against Wolfsburg. We've got Barcelona against Dynamo Kiev. They're the two early kickoffs. At 8pm, you get Lille against Sevilla. It should be a belter. Manchester United, desperately in need of a win and a good performance at home to Atalanta. Zenit St. Petersburg play host to Juventus. Benfica take on Bayern. Chelsea host Malmo. Should be a comfortable win for Tuchel's boys. And then, speaking of boys, young boys play host to Villarreal. This could be a disastrous night for Manchester United. If they lose and young boys win, they will find themselves three points behind with only two games left. With with three games left, they've got to go to Atalanta next, which won't be easy. Um, And then they've still got to go to Villarreal as well. So, difficult, difficult run for United coming up here. They really need to get a result tonight. And they need a good performance as well. But if they lose tonight and young boys win, I think United are are very likely Europa League bound. I don't see them getting a win in Bergamo. I don't see them winning away to Villarreal. They should beat young boys at home, but I mean, we thought they'd beat them away and they didn't. They lost. So, um, difficult times. The groups currently look like this. Group A, Manchester City are second behind Paris Saint-Germain. Club Bruges, third, Leipzig at the bottom. Leipzig, close to eliminated. No points. They will go out if they lose their next game. Uh, Liverpool, top group B, ahead of Atletico Madrid. Five-point gap there. Porto, level on points with Atleti, who have the better goal difference. Milan, bottom, with no points. Ajax, top group C, ahead of Dortmund. Sporting are third, and Besiktas are bottom. Sheriff Tiraspol still top of Group D because they beat Real Madrid, even though Real have the better goal difference. The head-to-head counts more. So Sheriff are top, then Real, then Inter, then Shakhtar. You do feel like Real and, and Inter will top the group, but Sheriff are well-placed to at least get the Europa League spot, which would be huge for them. Uh, Bayern, obviously, top group E, ahead of Benfica, Dinamo and Barca. Those are the games on tonight, obviously. Uh, just been through Group F. It's it's Atalanta, Young Boys, United, and then Villarreal. Group G, Salzburg are top, Sevilla second, Wolfsburg third, and Lille are bottom. We'll be interested to see if Adiemi, if he plays, can win a couple more penalties tonight. And then Group H, Juve currently top, then Chelsea, then Zenit, and Malmo bottom. Uh, Those are the games tonight. Do enjoy whatever games you decide to enjoy. We'll finish up 
with the gossip. Chelsea are willing to make Mason Mount one of the top earners at the club. Uh, I doubt it. I, I, he's going to sign a new contract anyway because he's not going to go anywhere else. I don't think they're going to have to make him one of the top earners. Uh, Spain forward Anzu Fati is close to signing a long-term contract with Barcelona, which will include the same one billion release clause as Pedri. Um, in that case, they've offered him more money. Atletico Madrid and England right-back Kieran Trippier, who was linked with a move to Manchester United in the summer, said he would love to play in the Premier League again. He also said he'd like to manage, which is interesting. Um, I'd be curious to see what kind of manager Kieran Trippier would be. Uh, my guess is not a good one, but I could be wrong. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will look to clear out at least five players from his squad when the January transfer window opens in January. When the January transfer window opens in January, that is brilliant. Uh, let's have a quick gander and see who those players could be. Um, if it were me, the first player I would clear out would be Paul Pogba, being honest. He's the first one I'd send away. Uh, Phil Jones, Paul Pogba, Juan Mata, Nemanja Vidic, no, Nemanja Matic, that's four. There's no one else there I'd really be in a mad hurry to try and sell. Everyone, I think, everyone else, I, I would sell, personally, I would try and sell Slabhead Maguire to Newcastle. He, he'd he be first and foremost, uh, well, after Pogba, but they're not going to do that. Um, maybe Jesse Lingard as well, just to, just, he's only got six months left in his deal when January rolls around. So, uh, yeah, they won't sell Pogba, obviously. But I'd be curious to see who the five would be. Matic, I think, should be one. He's 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 cooked. Uh, Jones will be one. Uh, I think Mata and Lingard make sense to go. I'm not sure who else, though. Really not sure who else. Um, Liverpool, Borussia Dortmund and RB Leipzig will have to pay between 30 and 40 million euro to sign Red Bull Salzburg and Germany striker Karim Adeyemi. I think he might end up at Bayern Munich, if I'm honest. Uh, Newcastle's new owners have yet to make contact with Steve Bruce. Well, don't you look foolish. Uh, the list of candidates to replace Steve Bruce has narrowed to Eddie Howe, Paolo Fonseca and Lucien Favre. Um, I, I don't think Gerrard and Lampard were ever really on the list. I don't think Rodgers was ever on the list. I think Rodgers just wanted to talk about it to make it, you know, make himself important. Uh, Netherlands defense, because realistically... Rodgers isn't going to go and manage a club in a relegation battle, no matter how much money he has to spend, because what if he goes down? What if he can't turn it around straight away? Rodgers won't won't risk his reputation like that. I think he'd take Newcastle over in the summer, but I just don't think that mid-season he'd go for that type of job. Summertime, almost certainly. Uh, Netherlands defender Matthias De Ligt is unhappy with his role at Juventus, leading his agent Mino Riola to hold talks with Barcelona. First of all, as we always, as I always say, Barcelona have no money, so they will not be doing anything of the sort. What Mino Riola is doing there is trying to get a new contract, or Sport are trying to make Barcelona seem relevant. When in truth, they're not. Roma are interested in Aston Villa forward Anwar El Ghazi, and the Midlands club would let him leave for 
18 million. I don't think they would let him leave for 18 million. I don't think Roma would be interested in him. And I certainly don't think Wayne Vesey is the player, is the fella who'll tell you uh, whether either of those things are going to happen. Uh, Leicester City manager Brendan Rodgers has praised Yuri Telemans as the Foxes look to extend his contract. I I think Yuri Telemans is probably going to leave in in the summer. Um, I don't see him wanting to extend his contract. He he's ready for a step up. He really is. FC Dallas and United States striker Ricardo Pepe. Pepe? Pepe? I'm going to go with Pepe for now until someone corrects me because it's funnier. Has alerted top European clubs, including Liverpool and Bayern Munich, in by handing in a transfer request. Allegedly, he's already agreed terms with Wolfsburg. If I was... FC Dallas, I would sit him on the bench for a few weeks and just tell him to shut his mouth as punishment for the going behind their back and dealing with Wolfsburg. Uh, I they, they knew they were going to have to sell him eventually anyway, but that's just bad, bad, bad form for him. Aston Villa will need to move quickly to sign River Plate's Julian Alvarez as AC Milan are also interested in the Argentine forward. Hadn't heard Villa mentioned with him before. Newcastle United and Leeds United will miss out on Blackburn Rovers English midfielder Joe Rodwell as he's chosen to sign for Rangers instead. I, Joe Rothwell, sorry. He hasn't been linked with Newcastle or Leeds, and why would either of them want him? Um, he's a decent player at the championship level. He is not a Premier League caliber midfielder. Rangers is a good move for him. He would be a squad player at best at Newcastle or Leeds. And I mean Newcastle now. Forget when they sign a bunch of players. West Ham are keeping tabs and Barcelona keeper Neto. They've got a better goalkeeper on their books already in Areola. So that's that would be silly. And finally, Manchester United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer says the club needs to decide before Christmas whether to keep Ahmed Diallo at the at, at the club or loan him out in January. Um, you should have thought of that before you signed Jaden Sancho, uh, you absolute clown. We will leave it there, folks. Nothing else to discuss for the day. Um, media narratives really wind me up, and uh, so does personal abuse. So do not send personal abuse to footballers on social media or managers on social media. Do not stand in the stand and scream personal abuse at Steve Bruce or any other manager for that that, that, that matter. Uh, but do take care of yourselves. Have a good day. And I will see you tomorrow. Myself and Guy are doing a tad predictable this week again. Uh, Tadiwa, he's part-time, really. Uh, but he'll be back, I think, next week. Um, but we're covering again this week. So... We're recording that later. That will be out tonight or tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.